Welcome to this podcast from JAMS. In this episode, we're going to discuss selecting a seat for international arbitration proceedings, the current regulatory framework that governs them, the rise of the United States as a hub, and trends that may fuel activity in the coming years. I'm joined today by three JAMS neutrals. Shelby Grubbs, who has decades of experience handling complex international and cross-border disputes. Robert Davidson, the executive director of GM's arbitration practice, who has participated in over 200 domestic and international arbitrations across practice areas. And Laura Abramson, the former head of global litigation for an American multinational infrastructure consulting firm, who also has extensive experience handling arbitrations within the U.S. and significant jurisdictions around the world. So thank you all for joining me today. You know, to start, Shelby, can you just help listeners understand the factors that are involved when selecting a seat for international arbitration? What do they need to be thinking about? Well, I think that, uh, uh, first of all, you want to be sure that the place you select as the seat has adopted the New York Convention or the Panama Convention. Typically, the New York Convention is, is what you will be seeing. But uh, having the convention in place or a convention in place will enable you to enforce your agreement to arbitrate and also the arbitration award. And then similarly, you want a place with a strong rule of law tradition, uh, which respects and and, uh, ideally fosters arbitration in a court system with reasonably current dockets. Assuming those items are covered, uh, I think that... uh, you will frequently want to seat your arbitration in the place that it is going to be enforced. Now, certainly it is possible uh, to to enforce an arbitration outside the seat, but your life may be a little less complicated if you seat the arbitration at the spot where you expect it to be enforced. And that's particularly true if you anticipate being an award creditor. That is, uh, uh, you're going to prevail and you're going to be trying to collect uh, an amount that is awarded. And so typically you want to consider where you might want to enforce and, and where assets are located. I think you also want to be sure that uh, you're in a country in which your dispute is arbitrable. In other words, you want to be sure that the country that you have selected as the seat will enforce the arbitration given its subject matter. There are uh, countries where there are limits on arbitrability. And lastly, you want a place that is reasonably easy to get to. You want to consider cost and convenience. And so you want to be sure that the seat that is selected has the infrastructure you need, has reliable transportation, hearing space, hotel space, translators, and so forth. All right. Well, thank thank, thank you, Shelby. What about challenges or, or, you know, hazards that, you know, can emerge when selecting a seat for different types of uh, disputes? Well, I mentioned the question of arbitrability. The United States allows arbitration of almost every type of commercial dispute. So we're accustomed to assuming that uh, pretty much anything and everything is arbitrable. However, there are countries uh, where the law does not allow the arbitration of particular types of disputes. So, for example, employment disputes in certain countries cannot be determined by arbitration. So you, you're in one of those countries and you have an, an employment matter. Uh, you want to be sure that it does not fall uh, within the uh, the prohibition. And, and then there are countries in which certain types of IP disputes cannot be determined by arbitration. So you want to be sure that the arbitration, that the seat of arbitration allows arbitration of the subject matter of the dispute. 
I was just going to chime in there for one second. Another hazard that people may not think about is there are certain jurisdictions which place significant limits on which arbitrators can actually work within that jurisdiction. For example, um, for many years, Thailand prohibited international arbitrators who weren't Thai from sitting in jurisdictions. So if, if you have a dispute where you want a certain uh, diversity of your arbitrators, you want to make sure that your seat wouldn't preclude that. Absolutely. Along the same lines, you want to be sure that you can uh, that you're going to be able to get to the the spot that is designated as the seat to the extent that you need to. And there can be geopolitical impediments. There are, for example, cases in which Iran was designated as the seat, but getting there proved to be difficult, if not impossible. And then, and then I think the last point I wanted to to mention here, Andrew, is that. You want to be sure you have a durable administering institution. Uh, recently, there was an arbitration agreement providing for arbitration in the United Arab Emirates, which was tripped up because the administering institution had ceased to exist. Wow. Robert, can you talk a little bit about the current regulatory framework that governs many of the international arbitrations seated in the United States? Uh, sure. I mean, uh, the framework really, and uh, uh, Shelby presaged this. First and foremost is the New York Convention, which is uh, a very important uh, multilateral treaty that allows arbitration and allows awards to be enforced in any signatory country. That's really the, the uh, first. Uh, below that is the Federal Arbitration Act. And here in the United States, uh, there are some recent cases that uh, uh, conclude that let's say, grounds for vacating or denying recognition and enforcement to an arbitration award uh, include the grounds that are set forth in the Federal Arbitration Act, as well as the very limited grounds which are set forth in the New York Convention. So there are expanded grounds to challenge an award in the United States, although there's a lot of overlap between the FAA, Federal Arbitration Act, grounds to vacate an award and the Article 5 grounds under the New York Convention to deny recognition and enforcement to an arbitral award. And finally, you've got the provider rules. And um, Shelby also touched on those. Um, There are institutions in the United States, uh, American Arbitration Association, uh, uh, JAMS, uh, CPR, to name three, And whatever rules that you select, even if they're not uh, domestic rules in the United States, you can pick any rules you want. You can pick the LCIA or the ICC rules for an arbitration which takes place in the United States. Those will also govern. And uh, one of the main points I think that I want to set forth is the the fact that uh, an international arbitration that takes place in the United States is subject to... uh, uh, venue rules which allow all pre- court proceedings to be submitted to federal courts in the United States and not state courts. And that means you get uh, rather specialized judges who are used to hearing these cases. You will not get any interference with a case while it is going on, and you will make sure that you have a, uh, a, uh, a rational judiciary with a long-established set of, uh, of, of case law to, to govern whatever proceedings that you want to institute. Mm. Well, those are definitely very strong benefits to instituting an international arbitration in the United States. Are there any others you want to mention here? 
Well, there's, of course, broad arbitrability rules, which is very important. You can arbitrate patent cases here. You can arbitrate antitrust cases. You can arbitrate securities cases in the United States. And uh, uh, you have access here, and this is very important, to very experienced people. There are many international arbitrators here in the United States who uh, are specialists that you can pick to uh, populate your panels and that will make um, excellent arbitrators. I also want to just mention a lot of people, uh, a lot of companies are afraid to enter the United States because they think that the broad discovery rules, which usually apply to U.S. cases, domestic cases, are going to be applied to their cases. And uh, I want to dispel that myth. Uh, international arbitration here is just as restrictive or expansive uh, mm. as uh, may be had in, in, in any country. And the last thing I want to say is that you are completely free here to appoint whoever you want as an arbitrator. So if you don't like Americans, you can appoint uh, Europeans. And if you uh, want someone from Asia, you can do that. There is no impediment to uh, who actually is authorized to hear a case. I might make a uh, another point, which I think uh, Bob touched on, but but the courts in the U.S. you are going to be in federal court, and the, uh, the there is a, a strong policy favoring the enforcement of arbitration agreements and arbitration awards. Courts are also in the United States, unlike courts in some places, very reluctant to uh, vacate or annul an award uh, based on public policy considerations, whereas you might find some, there's a, there's a provision in the New York Convention, uh, which allows for the, uh, uh, the refusal to enforce an award based on public policy considerations. And we do see that occasionally abu- abused in some jurisdictions, but uh, the United States is very, very stingy about that. So I think I could count on probably one hand the number of reported cases in which there have been public policy uh, annulments. Well, one of the things one of the things that's quite important too is that uh, the seat of the arbitration will generally govern the availability of provisional relief in arbitration. Uh, and uh, here in the United States, uh, arbitrators can issue injunctions. There are some jurisdictions when they can order orders of attachment. Uh, they can order, and there's a recent case on this. They can order that uh, uh, some uh, disgruntled party. Uh, cease parallel proceedings in other jurisdictions in order to uh, frustrate the arbitration which is being conducted in the United States. There are substantial substantial availability, and if a party succeeds through emergency application or otherwise, succeeds in getting a provisional uh, order or injunction, uh, the courts uh, here are friendly and will enforce that generally. So you have to wait to the end of the day. Uh, if the arbitrators order an injunction, you know, uh, stop that uh, uh, board meeting from taking place or, or stop the securities transaction from, uh, from uh, closing uh, uh, by a certain date and the other side refuses to abide by it. Uh, the courts are very friendly to enforcing those uh, those interim awards. Hmm. Great points. Laura, let's talk about the U.S. states and th- th- those states that have adopted frameworks based on the UNCTRAL model law, like, like California, and what differences exist among the states? 
Uh, seven states in the U.S. have enacted the ancestral model law. Not surprisingly, five of those states, including California, are ones where there's large cities with which are promising arbitration seats. You know, we have California with Los Angeles and San Francisco, Atlanta, Georgia, Chicago, Illinois, Houston, Texas, and Miami, Florida. Of course, the advantage of seating your arbitration in one of these states is that they their laws align with the law of international arbitration in a number of other jurisdictions around the world. But one of the things these states have done is they've modified the model laws in a couple of ways to, one, give greater clarity and definition where it's lacking in the model law, two, to fill gaps in the model law, or three, in ways that innovate. And and I think some examples people might be interested in with those, um, in terms of clarity, the UNCTRA model law doesn't define commercial for purposes of what's an international commercial arbitration that it applies to. California and Texas, for example, their versions of the model law they've adopted include long, non-exhaustive lists of activities that qualify as commercial and thus come under the umbrella of the law. You know, an example of filling the gaps that I think is important for parties and um, is an attractive feature in with respect to disclosures and challenges, everyone knows that the, the model law requires potential arbitrators to disclose circumstances that may give rise to justifiable doubts about their impartiality or independence. But it doesn't define what that is or what disclosures need to be made. Now, there's a body of soft law that's developed, the IBA um, guidelines on conflicts of interest, for example. But the model law in, in California is probably the most comprehensive, and it requires potential arbitrators to disclose matters where they've served as a lawyer for one of the parties, they've served as an arbitrator in another proceeding for the parties, or where they, either in a personal or fiduciary capacity or their family members, have a financial interest, or, or if they've got a close personal relationship or professional relationship, close professional relationship with a party, a lawyer, another arbitrator, a material witness, or someone who might have a financial interest. Under the New York Convention, one of the few grounds to overturn an award is where there is some suggestion of bias on behalf of the the arbitrator. And these expanded disclosures in places like California and Texas under their version of the model law, I think, gives parties comfort on that point going into an arbitration. Another example of, of filling the gaps and where California, I think, has has uh, taken the forefront is the new California law specifically allows attorneys who are not admitted to practice in California to nonetheless represent parties in international arbitrations as long as they're qualified um, attorneys either admitted in another state or another foreign country. Additionally, an example of, of this filling the gap, is the issue of arbitrator immunity. The model law does not contain any provisions addressing arbitrator immunity, but you know there's concerns in a number of jurisdictions around the world about arbitrators being subject to liability as a result of their participation in proceedings. And um, the California and Florida model laws give the same immunity to arbitrators that, that judges are given. Yeah, let me just uh, chime in on one point uh, uh, that uh, uh, Laura made was uh, California's rule that allows anybody uh, uh, 
any attorney to uh, represent a party in an international arbitration, uh, not just a California lawyer. Um, I don't want to leave the impression that that rule is uh, uh, also uh, common in the United States. Uh, California was kind of an outlier in that regard, and thankfully and very happily, they took care of that by statute. But you can appoint anybody to represent you in connection with an arbitration uh, without worrying about pro hoc vici uh, admissions or anything of that sort. Shelby, have you seen other regions in the United States respond to the growing demand for international arbitration? What have they been doing? Well, absolutely. I think the grand champion in the United States continues to be New York. Roughly speaking, um, I think probably 30% or so of international arbitrations uh, seated in the United States are are placed in New York. Um, And the New York State Bar has done a good job and the the New York City Bar has done a good job of uh, maintaining uh, that that advantage. There was a a study by Charles River Associates a few years ago uh, dealing with Toronto, um, which uh, got a fair amount of... uh, Coverage and a fair amount of, of you know of, of drew a lot of attention, uh, which suggested uh, that uh, hosting international arbitrations was very good for a local economy. And as a result of that, um, uh, we've seen a lot of organized efforts to attract international arbitration in various cities. Uh, these include Miami, Los Angeles, uh, Atlanta, certainly Boston, Chicago, Houston, and others. Um, and typically, uh, these efforts include, but are not limited to, enacting laws like the UNCTRA model law and, and uh, taking legal initiatives uh, like those mentioned by Laura, local uh, bar rules that remove impediments to foreign lawyers representing their clients in, in, in arbitration proceedings, and local court rules uh, that, uh, that expedite applications to compel arbitration so that uh, if if a party is, is not uh, cooperating uh, in an effort to uh, compel arbitration pursuant to an agreement, you can, you can get your case expedited, you can get your, your application to compel arbitration expedited and get it determined uh, so that arbitration's promise of, uh, of expedition is, um, is discharged. And, uh, and I mentioned Toronto. I'll go back to that just for, for a second. You mentioned the United States, but Toronto, following up on the Charles River study, um, has, uh, has also done a very good job of attracting uh, international arbitration. And, and I think their pitch there is, uh, is interesting because they sometimes want to take advantage of the fact that uh, they're near but not actually in the United States. But uh, uh, they're, they're fun. And I think all these communities are learning from one another. Uh, certainly here in Atlanta, we've learned a good deal from from uh, our uh, competitors and friends in other cities. I think what you've also seen is the emergence of a variety of, of, of areas in the United States developing um, stronger international arbitration practices and, and hosting international arbitration weeks. For example, in California, CalArb, which is the organi- organization of lawyers and arbitrators interested in international arbitration, has now um, put on with California Lawyers Association for the last two years, the California International Arbitration Week, the third um, California International Arbitration Week is going to take place March 11th through 14th in San Francisco, um, and it's been tremendously successful. Washington has also seen a, a, a very successful development of an 
International Arbitration Week in Washington, D.C., and New York has been having an International Arbitration Week for some years. Robert, what, what about regions that have a focus on certain practice areas or types of disputes? What, where you, what do you see in that area? Well, I suppose um, oil and gas, you have uh, Texas, Houston area, which is, uh, which is known for having, uh, having these types of cases, international and otherwise. Although it's difficult to pinpoint, I mean, uh, the thing about Texas, for example, is a lot of oil and gas folks there. For that reason, some people don't choose Texas if they have an oil and gas dispute. <laughs> they, will, they will go elsewhere. Uh, in New York, we see an awful lot of uh, uh, financial uh, disputes, uh, you know, whether it be uh, uh, investment, M&A activity, and things of that sort. Uh, Florida has a reputation for arbitrating disputes arising out of or relating to uh, Latin America. And California has got uh, a significant, I think, uh, attachment to, uh, to Asia. And for that reason, I think uh, uh, a number of cases, uh, significant cases coming out of that part of the world are going to California. One thing that I do want to mention that uh, someone mentioned that I think it's quite important is that we have here a, a legal regime that enforces a, a rather robust uh, uh, rules regarding disclosure. And there have been uh, substantial or significant cases coming out of other parts of the world in which after an award is rendered, it's challenged because someone finds out that an arbitrator had an undisclosed uh, uh, relationship with either another arbitrator or a party and that taints the award. Uh, here we have, under the regimes of the of the uh, uh, domestic providers, we have very robust rules of disclosure. And um, you know, if you've sat with another person as an arbitrator, uh, uh, you're you're supposed to disclose that. If you've uh, if you've been appointed uh, several times by the same party or the same law firm, you have to disclose that. So. A lot of the problems that have cropped up somewhat recently uh, in other places uh, uh, rarely come up here. Laura, why don't you look into your crystal ball and tell us what factors you think will be key to fueling international disputes uh, over the next few years? You know, I think that what creates more disputes are things that are disruptive. When parties enter into a contract and, and they have certain expectations about pricing and supply, when, when events like the COVID pandemic happen or there's huge supply chain disruptions or emerging or new technologies develop in ways that impact prices, you know, that's what really fuels business disputes and therefore for fuels international disputes. So I, I don't think, Andrew, that, that international disputes are, are different in, in origin other than, of course, issues arising out of, you know, wars, such as we see with the Ukraine. But, but it's really what, what's disrupting the business model that the parties were looking at when they entered into a contract. So changes in legislation. You know, we saw a number of international disputes in the solar energy space after some of the European countries started changing their legislation on what um, what incentives they were going to give the companies who were investing in those in those industries, 
Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a very good point. I think the the one thing that came to mind when you were speaking was that um, uh, the influence of AI on all this. I mean, AI, uh, you know, it's the thing things move faster. Suppose you have a uh, oh a company that sells medical information, and all of a sudden AI comes along and uh, disrupts the business model <laughs> because it can be done faster and more accurately by some other company and then you've got you've got problems but that's you know a lot of this is you know what's going to expand international arbitration is the constant the constant uh, means of disruption in commercial matters which are fueled not by evil people as much as they are by expanding technology uh, you know covid uh, events and I don't think international arbitration is going away by any means. Here's here's an example. I, I totally agree with 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 uh, you, Bob, and also with you, Laura. I, but I was thinking uh, this morning. There's a, a map or a graphic showing all the backup at the Panama Canal at the moment, which is really a matter of weather. There's been uh, a drought, and the canal is is not able to operate at its uh, normal capacity. And there are therefore ships lined up all out in on both sides of the canal, mm. uh, trying to get through the canal, and, uh, and and you can bet that that kind of stress uh, on the supply chain will result in in disputes and international disputes as people look look for ways to cover uh, their losses as a result of this sort of supply chain disruption. Yeah, good point. I, I think that's that's exactly right, Shelby. And, you know, another example might be, and, and, and the supply chain affects obviously so many different industries, but, you know, particularly in some emerging industries, you look at the, the solar industry. And I, I sat as an arbitrator in a, in a dispute last year, which was driven largely be, by the both the supply chain impact where the solar panels weren't getting from Asia to the U.S. in time. And secondly, legislation in the U.S. having to do with human rights abuses in China, which was stopping solar panels from China, specifically from being imported to the U.S. So you had a a combination both of supply chain disruption and regulatory disruption that was preventing some of these big solar projects from being constructed on time leading, of course, to a significant number of disputes. So, so death taxes and international arbitration, we will, we will count on them. Thank you so much for uh, a really fascinating discussion. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast from Jams, one of the largest private alternative dispute resolution providers in the world. Our guests have been Jams Neutral's Shelby Grubbs, Robert Davidson, and Laura Abramson. For more information about JAMS, please visit www.jamsadr.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from JAMS.